Hello, and welcome to Speaking of College of Charleston. I'm guest host Katie Hirsch, Director and Chief Curator of the Halsey Institute of Contemporary Art at the College of Charleston School of the Arts. And today I'm talking to North Carolina-based artist Kirsten Stolle, whose exhibition, Only You Can Prevent a Forest, runs through December 10th. Stolle creates visual poetry, photo-based collage, and an installation of gold-painted pesticide bottles to challenge corporate propaganda and inspire discussion. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Kirsten, I'm so excited to talk about your exhibition, Only You Can Prevent a Forest at the Halsey. And uh, I first want to kind of ground viewers in your practice and the umbrella of interest that your work uh, revolves under. So your work encourages viewers to reconsider historical narratives that have been presented by both agrochemical companies and the U.S. government, a lot of times in cahoots. Um, How did this interest first manifest for you? How did you even learn about this? Yeah, um, thanks for this conversation. Yeah. Uh, It first manifested back in the 1990s. Uh, I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my mom was living in Santa Cruz. And she was a big activist in the anti-GMO movement at the time. And at that time, I didn't really know what GMOs were. Uh, but she invited me to be part of this uh, puppet theater parade protest. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of words. That I know, it's a lot of words. And uh, did I mention she was an anarchist? <laughs> and um, so I drove down from San Francisco, and I'm kind of an introvert, so I didn't want to participate, but I wanted to watch. And it was awesome. She dressed up as this strawberry with fish gills, because at the time, Monsanto Chemical Company was trying to genetically engineer a strawberry to withstand the cold temperatures. They were going to insert a flounder gene and so people were up in arms oh about gosh. that yeah it just so you know it didn't work <laughs> uh, so that was sort of my introduction into GMOs um, I went about my life and then in 2009 ish um, I'd been a vegetarian for years I was eating a lot of soy product pro- products um, and a lot of soy that was giving me health problems and I couldn't understand why and it turns out that a lot of the soy was genetically engineered. And I didn't really remember. I was like, I don't really get why this is happening. Like, So I sort of investigated what genetic engineering was and why a company like Monsanto, which was a chemical company, would want to genetically engineer a plant. Through my research, it turns out they wanted to genetically engineer a plant so that they could dump all their chemicals left over from World War II in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I found that very fascinating. And so that kind of started me down kind of the research angle of looking into the greenwashing that chemical companies were doing, what's not being said, where the money's coming from, um, the kind of like cloak and dagger stuff that was happening beso- behind the scenes. You're really, I mean, you're a historian and an artist or an archaeologist of of the archives almost. Yeah, it it feels that way. I really get jazzed by like doing, you know, research, as they say. I'm not like a scientist, but sort of, you know, looking at articles, um, going down like government websites, going into some articles that are like kind of above my pay grade, but I can get the gist of the abstract (laughs) of the thing, you know. and kind of consolidating all that information and having an idea about something and then kind of formally putting it into some type of artwork. Usually the idea comes first and then the research and then ultimately the piece of art happens after that. 
And what I love about your work is, I mean, the nature of visual art, in any case, it's, it's very accessible for a lot of people, and especially for themes or histories that might feel intimidating or might feel overwhelming. And your work really kind of lays bare for viewers these complicated histories, co corporations uh, buying, you know, buying each other, hiding their names, making partnerships with the U.S. government, um, dumping chemicals on on people, on places, and your work acts as as a but kind you're of a catalyst. Yeah, you're a catalyst for for thought. I mean, and and this is going to be for many people the first exposure that they've had to this history of. You know, maybe they've picked up a bottle of um, Bayer pain medication that morning to help their ankle, and they had no idea right. about the level of involvement that Bayer's had in um, our world for for decades. For decades, and it's it's you know I'm learning all all the time. Um, so we had talked about in the talk that I just completed that um, the pharmaceutical company Bayer bought the chemical company Monsanto in 2018, and many listeners may know that Monsanto has kind of a dubious history of um, lots of protests against them, either because of GMOs or because of chemical dumping um, back in the 40s and the 50s. Um, not a great track record with farm workers. And when Bayer was um, working on buying them, Bayer's own shareholders basically said, don't buy this company. <laughs> and they went through with it anyway. Um, and now they were dealing with hundreds of thousands of lawsuits from people that have gotten cancer from using Roundup, which is the brand name. Um, you'll probably see it in Home Depot and Lowe's. People use it on their lawns. I would encourage you not to. It's very deadly to animals and plants. It's really good weed killer. Uh, but, but, but Bear wanted to disappear the Monsanto name. So when I first started researching them back in the 2000s, there's a Monsanto website, da, da, da. There, it does not exist anymore. In fact, when I went to look for it the last time, there was like this weird thing on there. It says, I'm sorry, you've reached a website that no longer is here mm. or something like that. Mm. <laughs> and I printed out the screenshot, you know. Like it never happened. Like it never happened. Um, and if you get on the Bear website, it's, you know, we're feeding families, we're feeding farmers, we're sustainable, we're environmental. Um, again, I'm fascinated by that kind of corporate spin. And in my art, I try to actually use their own tools, their own messaging, their own marketing, and create works that use their methods and use their strategy, but create work that speaks more true to what's happening, right? What's on the ground, no pun intended, <laughs> actually. I yeah. find that so fascinating about your work. I mean, a lot of the imagery is very recognizable to people. Like you say, if they've been to, to Lowe's, um, immediately they'll recognize a lot of the, the products that you feature in your work or the language, but they've never seen it pulled out in this way. And I, I find that so fascinating that your medium is provided by these people that you are kind of interrogating. Is that a process that you've always used in your work? It hasn't. I mean, prior to, even after I went to the puppet theater thing, um, I continued to do artwork that was very much about mark making, very much about color. I, was, I was, had been a printmaker for years doing etchings and monotypes, and my politics were sort of really separate from the art making. And it wasn't an, I mean, really, I guess I have to thank the health issues, really, to, to kind of propel me to really dig deep into a company and why they're doing it. So, so prior, no, um, and I feel, thankful that that's where my brain has now gone and I really like finding original source material and I really like I mean visually it's exciting even even if I 
didn't know anything about these chemical companies, the way that they position themselves is kind of spectacular. You know, it's beautiful, some of the materials, their websites, it's very enticing, it's very seductive, you know. And then you go, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, what, I guess part of my, my work is also about having people have a critical eye. And it doesn't just have to be with the chemical companies. It could be anybody, pharmaceutical companies, i.e. Bayer, any, pick, pick a topic, right? To not always believe what is presented to you. And, and not, not always, not not believe what's presented to you, but have a critical eye and really follow who's saying what, where did they come from? You and I, Katie, had talked about, um, there's this term called the revolving door which in, in my case with the chemical companies, you'll have someone that worked for corporate Monsanto, like a corporate lawyer, who will then leave industry and then go work for the US government for the department that is supposed to regulate pesticides. I find that problematic, and I think people should know. Now, what they do with that information, you know, I don't know, but I can only create aesthetically interesting, exciting, compelling work that kind of brings that up because that's the kind of work I want to see. Like, I want to go, if I don't know something about a topic and it makes me think, then maybe I'll go home and look into it or have a conversation with someone who knows more about it than I do. <clears throat> Excuse me, than I do. Yeah, I think asking people to reposition their own knowledge or um, question where they gained that knowledge is something that is so valuable and um, why it's so exciting for, for me and other, other lovers of contemporary art because you artists are perfectly positioned to, to ask us, to encourage us, to challenge us to, to do that for ourselves. Um, in your statement on this work, you, you reference poetry, you reference the Black Mountain poets. There's a lot going on besides just you cut out these words and you put them on the black right, paper. So right. I wonder if you could talk through that, the making of that work. Um, so yes, it's it's this corporate history uh, written by a uh, Monsanto PR person. And so I read it from front to back because I kind of wanted to see what they were saying. And it was written in the 70s. So it um, tracks the history of Monsanto from 1901 when they were incorporated up until the 1970s. And what was interesting to me is in the back of this book, there's an appendix, 16-page appendix, which lists from 1901 to 1978, I think, all the chemicals Monsanto has created. And the way they listed it out in the appendix is they have the date, 1900, and then under it listed is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 0 horizontally. And depending on when the chemical was um, produced, it lines up underneath that number. And so visually, it looks kind of like a poem to me. I thought it was very exciting, right? It's like structured. There's no meaning to it. I'm really into visual poetry, which I can talk about a little more. So I cut out all the appendix and I sat with it for four years because <laughs> I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and then I had an idea. So my idea was to use this process called selective concordance, where I'll give you an example. If you're uh, in a Word document and you want to find the word Renaissance everywhere you've written, and you type in Renaissance and it clicks it and it finds it within your document. I did it the analog way. In that appendix, within every chemical name, wherever there was a verb present, I cut it out with an X-Acto knife. So I elided it. I've leave, I leave this space. So I take the one page. I've cut out all the verbs. I then pile up the verbs on the side, hang out with them for a while. Um, the piece that's been cut out underneath is has pink paint underneath it. So that shows through where I cut out the piece. And I used pink because it's like kind of like this sickly kind of color. 
Next to the uh, excised book page, I have put a piece of black paper and their various rectangle shapes. And if you go to the Halsey, you'll see they're kind of dynamic looking. And then I take those cut out words and I place them on the black page. And referencing the Black Mountain thing, I did this sort of like chance and random process where I would take them in my hand, I'd pile them up and let them drop. Sometimes I would just keep them where they are. Sometimes I would move them. Um, and then I would glue them, which was actually quite difficult <laughs> to keep them down and glue them at the same time. And the reason I wanted that chance element was to have a kind of like a disparate connection to the very structured look of the kind of, you know, quote unquote, poem on the left with the excised words to the right. Um, so I think it, it works really well. And it was always meant to be a 16 page kind of one look kind of thing. Um, and it's interesting when people come to it because from far away it reads as something and then when you get close to it, um, there's this idea of, I think I'm supposed to be able to have meaning but I can't find the meaning. And that's kind of the point of like visual poetry and concrete poetry and things that there's not a correlation between what you're seeing and a meaning necessarily. It's more the importance of the image and the words have sort of same space, right, together. Mm -hmm. And that work is in a gallery in the smaller gallery in the Halsey that it's accompanied by a lot of kind of word heavy uh, text-based work and we talked about that space having a very different feel from our larger gallery the Chalsty gallery and you worked with the Halsey staff um, for many years to talk about the kind of atmosphere the separation of experience I don't know if people know how much work goes into deciding what goes where how high does it go does it go one inch to the left or one inch to the right um, but that you know it, it we're thinking very carefully about how people experience individual works and how they experience the entire exhibition um, altogether and that this this layout is really essential part of that and so we talked about the larger gallery is kind of a, a spectacle it's bombastic it's colorful um, there it's interactive and then that the smaller gallery is more contemplative it's for closer looking and I wonder um, if you can talk to us a little bit about that experience you envisioned for people walking in, especially for listeners, since um, they can't see it and they haven't been yet, but that you had a whole experience in your mind when you thought about what to show and, and where to show it. And I wonder if you can, we can give a sneak peek about what that thought process was. Yeah, the, um, the gallery, you can tell me how many square feet is it? 4,000? 3,000 3,000 square feet. So um, very thankful for this opportunity. It's my largest show to date, so it's very exciting. Some of the work is existing, but because of COVID, <laughs> I had additional time to make more work. And as you walk into the space, I have my first neon piece, which was very exciting. Um, the title of the show is Only You Can Prevent a Forest, and the title, the title of the neon is also, it's a text-based neon piece. And we centered that on the wall, on a black wall, so it's uh, vibrating green. And it's this nice connecting work between the smaller gallery, which has more of the visual poetry, the concrete poetry, more of the focus and attention and sort of quietness, has a nice connection to the other side and the larger gallery space, which is really seductive, really bright. You're bombarded on the left of the wall with 10 giant images. They're 44 inches by 44 inches of pesticide pop, which are oversized pesticide bottles from Bayer and Monsanto and Dow Chemical on these giant fields of glitter and also bright colors, right? It's a nod to um, 
series and advertising and uh, you know the pop pop culture. Um, and it was important to have a way to walk through the gallery. And Katie, you and I talked about that. Um, I have a sculpture in the, in the middle of the gallery, which has a nice connection to the pesticide pop, which is a mirrored platform with 500 gold glitter-covered pesticide bottles kind of careening and towering and falling all over the floor and off this mirrored platform. And the idea was that is to basically talk about the absurdity of putting these chemicals on this like pedestal of admiration. You know, the pesticide companies have touted these for centuries, literally, <laughs> um, as the best thing since sliced bread. You know, they're going to do these wonder chemicals, they used to call them. You can actually find that terminology in some of the advertising. Um, and I want to say, well, maybe not. You know, and also, isn't it absurd to cover these pesticide bottles in glitter and gold? And what is that all about? And it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it. Yeah. Um, it also has this kind of like swirling feel where it looks like a whirlwind and a landfill coming apart. We've um, talked about it looking like so many different yeah. things over the, the course of the week. Yeah, that it's, it's a landfill and it's... We've also talked to like almost a religious element with right. the gilded, right. but then makes you, it's money as well, mm-hmm. green gold. Um, and I think something I wanted to tell you about that I was just thinking, was thinking about actually this morning was I was listening to a podcast um, that was talking about humor and how the, the physical response uh, is laughing, laughter, sure. and that it's often like that you're recognizing a, a truth and, um, maybe it's uncomfortable and that laughing is a response to that. And so I'm kind of, I'm very curious in that context to think about how people react to plant protection, this gold glittery sculpture, because they might have these bottles in their home right. and here they're being asked to think about it. And it is, it's kind of funny, right? Or abs- funny is not the right word. We use absurd or it's curious. And um, I think... Where I'm, where I'm going with that is that it is maybe an uncomfortable truth that we've lived with these things and we haven't thought about what it is and where it came from and what it's doing. And that, that work kind of very literally makes you stop and, right. and rethink it. Because something that's when visual art is really exciting to me. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, there is something... You know, aesthetically, I want I want people to be drawn into the work because it's interesting, compelling. Doesn't have to be beautiful necessarily, but I want you to feel something, and then I want you to get close to it, and then have whatever reaction you're gonna have. You know, maybe it's being uncomfortable, maybe it's head scratching, like I don't really understand what's going on. You know, maybe it's an aha moment. You know, like I like that when I visit museums and galleries and I have that oh my gosh what's I didn't think this was when I walked in what it is you know um and that's why I like actually having artists talk because then I can talk to people that are there and just kind of get their perspective and see what they're feeling what kind of reaction they're having and and conversations with other other humans as mm-hmm. it were yeah that's what I love to tell people that there's there's not a right reaction right. like if you're having a reaction that's the point it can be I love this this is the best thing I've ever seen or it can be I I I don't understand this. That's also a totally valid reaction. The point is to just come and and now you've um, grown your kind of visual literacy that much more just by looking at this piece, despite your feelings about it. Yeah, and and it's having that critical eye. You know, I mean, 
I feel it's lacking. <laughs> I don't know, you know, in my sort of like 21st century. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm just one person doing some art, you know, and if I could, you know, not even make a difference, but have people think, you know, and have people, you know, maybe maybe get a different perspective, have a different experience, maybe consider something they never considered before. I'm curious, like, talking about reactions, so we've talked about reactions to the visuals, or um, I'm curious if you've ever had a reaction from people that are pro pro-pesticide or pro-agrochemical companies. We've talked about your desire to wish that you could talk to employees of those corporations. Um, I wonder, have you, what is the range of reaction to the subject matter of your work? Generally, people are relatively on the same page, I would say, sort of like mentally, you know, mentally, emotionally. but I have, like, I have talked at, um, like, a bioengineering, biotech folk people. Um, and that was really interesting. They were doing stuff around genetically engineering mosquitoes, uh, oh. which... Well, that's very appropriate for the I, low country. Right, yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I don't... I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't know enough to speak eloquently about it. And I have concerns, but I haven't done a project on it yet. But but I was talking to a professor who was dealing specifically with um, data around that, and so he was very open. I was very open. And it was very it was interesting to me. I didn't I didn't come in with a like oh my god this is bad kind of attitude, and he didn't either. Um, so it it was interesting. Now I've never been approached. Uh, at least not that I know of, they had to identify themselves as someone who worked for one of the chemical companies. I mean, it could be it could be interesting. You might be in somebody's, you might be on a list somewhere. I could be on a list somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what's next for you? What are you currently uncovering for us? So right now, so part of the, so the title, I'll refer back to the title piece, Only You Can Prevent a Forest, and, and maybe I should explain where that, that wording comes from. So Um, Another thrust of my show at the Halsey is making the connection between the chemical companies and their military past, Uh, primarily their military past with the Vietnam War. So when the government, our U.S. government, uh, went into Vietnam, they dumped a bunch of herbicides onto the Vietnamese to destroy the forest, um, made, obviously killed a lot of Vietnamese, um, also killed a lot of American soldiers. Who did they hire for the chemicals, the chemical companies? And so they don't want you to know that. They want to sort of forget, you know, so, so I want to bring it to the fore. Um, so the only you can prevent a forest, um, the operation was called Operation Ranch Hand. And one of the service members, um, there's this photo, you can find it online, where he took the Smokey the Bear. Uh, Smokey the Bear was a... Um, uh, advertising campaign actually started in the 40s uh, to prevent U.S. forest fires, to, to sort of get people like you and I to, you know, not litter and call out forest fires and stuff like that. So it was a very successful program. The service person took the Smokey the Bear poster and where it says only you can prevent forest fires, he um, scratched out fires and put an A, so it's only you can prevent a forest because they were dumping a bunch of herbicides on the jungle in Vietnam. I found that so fascinating and disturbing and head-scratching and bizarre and so strange. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I, I remember in school, you know, we learned when we learned about the Vietnam War and we learned about Agent Orange. Yes. But in your work, you highlight there's many different agents 
um, Agent Pink, Agent White, Agent Blue, uh, and had no idea. And neither did I know that these were supplied by brand name companies that I've bought, right. you know, aspirin from or, or whatever. So that's, um, that's wild. I think that's going to be wild for people to make that connection. Yeah, and it was fascinating to me. Like I just, I just went to this deep dive to learn about the Vietnam War because, like, I learned it, but I didn't really learn it. Like I sort of forgot. Mm-hmm. And so I was reading all these like very dense, oh my god, articles and and things about the amount of pesticides that they dropped and all you know all this stuff. And and then they had this lovely term called rainbow herbicides. And I thought, what the heck is that? Um, it's called rainbow herbicides, and so in addition, like you said, to Agent Orange, there are five other colors, and the colors referred to the band that was around the 50-gallon drum where they would store these herbicides, and each color was a different chemical uh, composition of various uh, chemicals. Agent Orange, there's actually more than one Agent Orange. There's like two or three, like Agent 1, 2, and 3. Um, it was the most sprayed, and it's the one that most of our service people uh, to this day are having problems with, and obviously the folks in Vietnam as well. Um, and yeah, I think it's important to not tamp down that history, like really put it out there. And then you, and then you can decide, you know, like, well, do I, do I still want to buy glyphosate? I, you know, I can't answer that. Um, but it's just, for me, it's important to put that out there Well, you, art- artistically. Definitely asking the question, and we're so excited that, that you are. And um, it's been amazing for me to learn all of these histories as I've learned about your work working with you. So I'm really excited for the Call to Charleston community and our greater community here in Charleston to be able to ask these questions through your work. So thank you so much. Thank you. I, I'm thrilled to have the show here. I mean, Katie and I have talked about this, but my conversation started in 2013 with the Halsey. So this is how long these things can kind of take, you know, vis-a-vis COVID happening and, you know, programming that the college has and my, my own programming and to have the support that you have all provided and just the great conversations I've had so far being here in Charleston with people has been has been wonderful. And so I look forward to talking to people more about it for sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Speaking of College of Charleston with today's guest Kirsten Stolley. To see the exhibition in person, visit the Halsey Institute from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday and 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Thursdays. The galleries are free and open to the public. For more episodes and to learn more about our guests, visit the College of Charleston's official news site, The College Today, at today.cfc.edu. You can also find this and past episodes on all major podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. This episode was produced by Amy Stockwell from University Communications with recording and sound engineering by Jesse Kunz from the Division of Information Technology. Thank you for listening.